Aftermath is brought to you by Art of Problem Solving, where we develop educational resources for motivated students, including textbooks, an online school, in-person learning centers, and a variety of online applications. We build the tools we wish we had when we were students. Welcome to Aftermath, where we talk to fascinating people in and around the STEM world about where they've been, where they are now, and how their passion for math helped them get there. I'm your host, Richard Russick. My guest today is Grant Sanderson. Some of our listeners know him under the name 3Blue1Brown, and if you don't know that name, you have some catching up to do. So after the show, head on over to YouTube and check his work out. Today, you'll hear about how Grant's background in math inspired him to start making videos, and how this put him on the path to YouTube stardom. You'll also get to hear the two of us compare notes about what it's like building a platform that brings challenging math to the world, and discuss the value of making math education interesting, accessible, and beautiful. So whether you want to learn what it takes to become a successful content creator, or you're a 3 blue one brown fan who wants to know more about where these amazing math videos are coming from, or you're someone who wants to understand where math education is now, and where it's headed in the future. You're in the right place. Welcome to the show, Grant. Thanks for having me on. Now, we'll get to the details of 3 Blue, 1 Brown in a bit, but I would like to get some numbers out of the way so our listeners understand what we're dealing with here. First, how many subscribers do you have? <laughs> um, so I think we're in the mid-800,000s now. Although if you count China, because there is a translated version onto a Chinese site, it is technically over a million. But... <laughs> Of course, that doesn't count until you see one entity showing you one flashy number. So <laughs> mid-800s, we'll say. So uh, how, many, how many views do you have of your videos across all the videos? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I actually don't know off the top. I, I think like 30 million might be a good estimate. Um, I'm, not, I'm not positive, but something in that range probably. All right. For those of you keeping score at home... That's a little bit more than we at AOPS have. Uh, we're probably around four or five million, but to give some more context to your numbers, how long have you been doing this? Uh, so first video went up uh, 2015, um, but it was pretty slow uploading progress for like the first year or so. Um, and it wasn't until end of 2016 that I started kind of doing it as a full-time endeavor. Cool, so you racked all this up in like a year and a half or so. So for more context, AOPS videos have been up for, I don't know, eight or 10 years or something like that. So, Oh, Richard, it's not a fair comparison. I mean, <laughs> if we do the counts on like how many instances have there been of people reading your books, right? We're going to be well above 30 million. I, well, maybe. It's nice to think I, so. I, I I'd like to think I the world would be a better place that. if that were true. <laughs> and it is because of it. Uh, well, thank you for saying it. Um, so let's, I, we're going to talk a little bit about how you got here, and these, these sorts of paths are obviously never straight. Um, mm -hmm. let's, let's start kind of back in middle school, high school. Were you a math kid then? Oh, for sure. Um, I mean, you can go back earlier than that, and I probably would have had as part of my identity liking math. Cool. So middle school, high school, even before that, you're playing with math. You go off to Stanford. What happens next? <laughs> um, so I would say if you were to ask me like senior year of high school what I wanted to be when I was older somewhere up there pretty high would have been mathematician right I, I knew from the start that's what I would major in right you know it's one of those things you look around at the other people toiling over oh whatever am I going to major in and you have this 
snide feeling of ha 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 i already know my passion right um and and of course it's never so clear as that because uh i started taking some computer science and realized oh this is pretty sexy too um and i mean it's a cousin of math so maybe it doesn't genuinely count as something different but uh so i I think the first summer uh when i was at stanford i you know i had an internship at a Mm -hmm. silicon valley startup classic thing to do and that definitely got me thinking much more seriously about paths that were not pure math um, and that would have been more industry focused, right? Um, and same deal with kind of the summer after that, where it was, the first one was the kind of internship that you can get when you're a freshman, which is not necessarily gonna be given a lot of technical freedom. Um, and then one after that, I think I was given much more technical freedom than okay. maybe I should have been, right? It was like <laughs> a much scrappier situation. They're like, so anti-fraud is gonna be a big deal here. Can you write like an identity resolution system? Like, I don't know, can I? Let's have fun. Um, and could you? And I wrote something. Uh, I think they were using it for a few years afterwards, surely with some like add-ons and fixes. But I think I at least, I think that was the first time I felt like I did useful things that lasted. Because okay. when you're a student, right, all of the stuff that you do just evaporates because it gets graded and then it's gone. You're not doing something that is going to be there more permanently in the world. Um, and even even in industry, you know, it should be the case that what you put out there isn't permanent, hopefully it's updated, right? But I think that was the first instance of feeling, ah, man, there's a different kind of satisfaction that comes from having something that you feel proud of that even like a couple years later you look at and like maybe it's still there or a child of it is still there in some way. So that Um, was the start of that sort of emotion that that wanting to make something that's... Probably, yeah. Because if I'm trying to think of like, what what else did I do that actually (laughs) touched people in some way? I mean, it's it's only ever going to be on like individual levels that you touch people, right? Like, you know, another thing I was passionate about, um, you know, in high school and through college was music. And that's the kind of thing where you can also feel good about touching people, especially if you write a new song, then it feels like they would not have heard this if it weren't for me. But it's so in the moment. Um, and it's not something that like a year later, they, you know, I never like recorded or put out an album or anything. So that yeah. probably was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Just you wait, Richard. Albums dropping this fall. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> so this is this. I mean, was this kind of a, a step away from being a pure mathematician? As you're starting to think moving sure. away from academia, for sure. Um, but uh, with every with every action, you know, there's a little bit of reaction. And I think at the end of both of those summers, I had this itch of this is great and this is fun and it feels nice. But boy, do I miss math and like problem solving. And kind of also a realization that most of the work that's going to go into engineering or data science, even if there's math, like real math at the heart of it and real problem solving at the heart of it, it's such a minority of your time. Like you should not be solving new problems as a data scientist or as a a software engineer, right? Because odds are the thing you're coming across, someone else has dealt with, they've written a library that's going to do it better than you can. Your job is to like get one system to talk to another system the right way, right? Um, most yeah, it's work. Yeah, work is <laughs> work is not sexy. <laughs> yeah, and, you know this goes for a lot of things. Like th- there is no such thing as a truly glamorous career where you're just like sitting in the clouds, solving difficult problems or like coming to epiphanies. That like even as a pure mathematician, there's a lot that's just going to be like the grunt work component of it that either has to do with like the politics of your institution or grading or even just like. Uh, once you have in the research side, once you have a solution to something like carrying out the right. details um, to to making it appropriately rigorous and putting it out there and grants all of that stuff, right? Like most of it is going to be the unsexy 
more grunt work like components. So there's character building in that. And I think everyone should have a knowledge of that. If not by the time they get to college, then sometime before they leave college that like, this is what the world consists of. Um, when did but... you, when did you come to these sorts of, <laughs> I, I would, I would describe it maybe around then. Right. And, and yeah. also I, I was still very unwise. I still am very unwise. And I'm sure there's just lots of, um, maybe naive views that I had slash have about like what a career can consist of, but it definitely would have been in those particular internships of knowing, okay, this is a little bit closer to what being a person adding something to the world looks like and feels mm -hmm. like. Um, and you know, there's a nobility and like the, the, um, I don't want to call it grunt work. That's really not the right word. I'll just call it the unsexy work, right? Uh, that it feels satisfying and like, ah, this is why no one else is doing it. It's not because they're not smart enough to do it. Yeah. It's because it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> like there's so many things out there worth doing and it's going to be worth doing because no one else is doing it. And you like, when you're egotistical, you like to think the reason no one else is doing it is because they're not smart enough. They can't solve the thing you can solve. But really it's like, ah, it's just such a pain and like the logistical difficulty, like all yeah. of all of the cleaning of the data and those little things that you realize that is really where you're going to add something. Um, That's also, but, I think, where you make that step from good to great. You know, when I watch people in our building who are what I would call like really great at whatever yeah. it is that they're very special at, there's this there's this thing where they, they get it 90% good in that 20% of the time that, that people who are good at stuff can do. But then they spend that other 80% of the time to take it that rest of the 9, nine or 10% of the way to turn it from yeah. a good thing into a great thing. And part of it is focus, part of it is passion for what they're doing, and part of it is just willingness to go through uh, what I would, some standing on the outside, being like, oh, come on, like if it's somebody doing some design work, you're really going to care about those two pixels? And they'll <laughs> care about the two pixels for another three hours, and what they'll produce is, is great. It's not just good anymore. It, it has moved from, from good into great territory. Our artists on our Beast Academy are like this as well. Like You see what they do, and then you compare, compare it to what, other people might be producing or other people have sent to us um, when they're when they're trying to join the team and you can see the difference and it's all in that extra you know what, what we're what you and I are calling grunt work right now I mean this <laughs> right. is and, and what other people call genius because they don't actually see what's going on uh, they Do you have don't, a good they, way to filter for that in interviewing right like identify if someone is going to take things that last 10 percent that's really hard um it's a great question I mean some of it is uh, one little thing here's a kind of crazy thing the cover letter sometimes hmm. i'll look at a cover letter and i'll think wow you spent an hour and a half editing that after you spent 30 minutes writing it and you can you hmm. can see it you can see it that they actually cared to convey a message about us in particular about them in particular and the, and the two together and to take the time to you know put the links to the things in there and and address the things that we actually put up on the job application so i mean obviously that's I mean, people are coming at you cold or maybe they know you a little bit and they're sending something in that has that has been somewhat of an indicator every once in a while you have someone that just blows the doors off again using our artist uh, eric owen for our beast academy mm. uh, elementary school stuff his job application he sent in um you know we were talking about doing beast academy we we're going to draw monsters he sent in a a bunch of monsters he drew just for this. He's like, oh, mm. you're doing something for kids? It could look like this. And several of those original drafts ended up, you know, they're, they're some of our main characters now. So that's kind I of a real so. above and beyond. So like in your world, it would be somebody sending in a, you know, here's a four minute video that I've done in your style, da 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 da. Mm -hmm. So they actually done the portfolio work. In the actual interview is a lot 
is a lot harder. We have teaching demos here um, mm. for just about everything now. So it's not just our math people that we have teaching demos. We had, uh, you know, we just hired somebody to help us with our operational work here. You know, we have tons of emails coming in and we've got mm -hmm. to deal with all shipping all the books out. And we asked all the applicants there to just come in and sit around and explain something to us mm. and do a teaching demo with us. And there they're starting from something they really love. And if they can't get to the details and get excited about something they love, boy, it's going to be impossible to get them there on something they don't <laughs> love. Uh, so, you know, the the woman we hired, I think she came in and t taught us about some knitting stuff and, mm. uh, you know, really dove into the details. And people came out of it excited and, and like really that. enjoyed it. I love that. So those are a couple. You know, if you can't get them, if you can't get them really rolling on something they love, you'll never get them rolling on something they don't love. Mm. Um, so uh, jumping jumping back to Stanford, sure, so you're, sure. you're getting towards the end of Stanford, and you've got all these mixed mixed things going on. You've had these internships. You're like, do I want to go build something in the world, or am I really still a mathematician? Right, right. How did you how did you work through that? Well, I think somehow I came to the thought that like, no, math is the, the genuine pure love. Um, but at the same time, I, I think I was hesitant to go straight into grad school um, for a couple reasons. Maybe the most honest and direct one was I didn't have a clear view of the specific field I would want to go into as far as like research mm -hmm. was concerned. Um, and I know like choosing an advisor is extremely important and even though you know you can like go to a good institution and then shop around once you're there it just really felt wiser to have a clearer plan before then um also frankly i had probably done a really poor job actually connecting with the faculty at stanford and um you know the, the, perhaps the most important thing there is actually having like strong recommendations in some way so i think there was just this little nervousness of like not i don't know maybe just like not being my best self there and at the same time, I also place a lot of value in diversity of backgrounds translating into originality of whatever your work is, right? Mm -hmm. And if everybody going into being a math researcher has what is, at least at a surface level, the same trajectory, right? You go to school, yeah. you go to undergrad, you go you'll get your like PhD, postdoc, whatever that might be, as opposed to like spending several years in industry doing something totally different. Um, so I just wanted to do literally anything different for at least a year or two, which is, oh, that's probably not the smartest thing to do if you actually want to optimize like getting into good grad schools, because at least in math, unlike some yeah. other departments, right, it's not smiled upon to take such a gap year uh, or two, right? Right. But for, for the reasons I mentioned, that was something I was sort of inclined towards. Uh, in, in parallel with all of those thoughts also, I uh, kind of during that year when I was a little bit more focused on math and veering away from like software engineering stuff. I just wanted a coding project to keep myself sharp in that domain. Um, and because I had done a couple like more lecture formatted things or more like personal tutor style things where I really wanted to have a nice visual to describe things. Cause as you might guess, I think about math very visually. Yeah. And if I'm teaching yeah. it, I really want to be able to like whip up the, the visual that is in my head to put into someone else's. Um, I just wanted to write my own little graphics library half to get a little more familiar with graphics, half to have something that I could just whip up in that way. Um, and you know, the, the goal that I had in mind for like, have I finished my personal project here was like, use it to make a video. Um, like yep. if it's useful for explaining things, presumably you should be able to make a video using it. That is kind of an animation driven, uh, description of some topic. Now, when and, did you start this? Is this your senior year of college? You start playing with this junior yeah. year, senior yeah, year? That would be, that would be senior year. I mean, obviously I'd like played around with other probably projects to similar effects, maybe 
earlier on. But yeah, that that would be like... That's funny. This this is very resonant for me because beginning of my senior year, Shandor and I are walking around around in college and he turns to me and says, we should write a book. So I mean, Mm. it's exactly the same time. You know, I do, Mm. I started, you started building software to do these brilliant animations and we started writing a book. And let me ask you, at that point, did you have a sense, like even in the back of your mind, like, oh, it would be great if this book really like took off and maybe like that could be a thing in the future? Or was it just something of the moment, write a book and then probably have a a life path that moves in a different direction? Uh, A little of both. Like Shandor and I had originally, we started talking about building an education company, but this was 1993. Mm. There wasn't an internet yet. Mm. So it wasn't obvious how to do that. And we, Mm. we spent a lot of time talking about it. We actually spent an obscene amount of time trying to decide where to put the company, which was a completely ridiculous thing. You know, it wasn't there weren't it wasn't obvious then like it is now. You go to Silicon Valley, you go to Boston. Actually, there are a lot more places now that you can you can choose from. Uh, so what I did, there was no internet. I actually went to grad school and mm. learned all the lessons that you just discussed. This the importance of uh, recommendations. Um, I learned that by. March my senior year, I had not even applied to any grad schools, and my advisor came up to me and he said, "What are you doing next year?" I'm like, "I have no idea." He says, "What about grad school?" I said, "I haven't, I haven't actually filled out any of the applications." And he says, "Oh, that doesn't matter." Listed off six schools. I said, "Okay, I'll take the three in California," <laughs> and uh, he said, "Okay, well, go ahead and fill out the application." I'm like, "Look, it's two months late." He said, "Does doesn't doesn't matter? Doesn't work that way." I sent hmm. in the application, and I went to Stanford for exactly eight weeks. So <laughs> that's a story for another day. Um, I left because I wanted to share knowledge. I wanted to be a teacher. This thing, this book that Shandor and I was we were working on was starting to grow into something more that I wanted wanted to do. Was we this did, Art of Problem Solving Volume 1? Was this was Art of book? Problem Solving Volume 1. We, we pushed out in September of 93, and then Volume 2 came out in April, and I was teaching high school by then. Interesting. And so... So this is really resonant for me when you're talking about <laughs> your experience of, you know, I want to make something, I want to build something in your senior year, and then deciding that grad school, maybe later, maybe something maybe something else first. Yeah, and I think because all along, you know, in the same way you're describing wanting to share knowledge, I think that was the end goal, right? And there exist, um, you know, those mathematicians who spend a lot of their time more on the outreach side than on the research side. And the research side and having an institution is almost for the sake of having the authority to even be in a position of publicly teaching people about math, right? Like if you want to write a book about it, um, maybe it gets published and popular on merit alone, but more often than not, like you need, you need something to bootstrap that of like, why would anyone read a book written by you? Right. And I think somewhere in my mind, it was just like to, to actually have a good standing at a good place would be, if not necessary, like a strong help to, to any sort of path that involves outreach like that. And it turns out the internet makes that not so true anymore, <laughs> which is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, there's it's a lot fantastic. of other forms of luck that need to fall into play. But yeah, you're, yeah. you're totally right. It, I, yeah. I think there's a lot more room for meritocracy now, um, or, or I, rather than saying now, through medium media other than those like books where you mm-hmm. kind of, there's kind of this funneling point of publishers and things of that sort. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful age we live in, and I'm glad I wasn't born 20 years earlier. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe I should be glad you weren't born 20 years earlier. It would add a lot more competition. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, like, we actually went and talked to one of those publishers, and he very politely said, look, 
you guys have a better reach into your our market than was math contest kids. Um, he said, you have a much better reach into your market than I do, so you guys should self-publish. Now, in retrospect, I realize all he was saying was, I really need to get these 21-year-old kids out of my office because nobody's <laughs> going to read a math book written by a 21-year-old. Um, but he turned oh, out to be right. Point. I need to go back and thank him at some point. So you're, you're, you're building this thing. You're building sure, this animation yeah. tool. You're going to make some videos. Yeah, so around that time, I um, so I put out the first video. Uh, I look back on it, and I don't necessarily feel proud, but I enjoyed making it, so I wanted to make another one. And I think the video I made after that was based on a lesson I had just done with a student who I, it was like a private tutoring situation, and the student loved math and would always, it's the kind of lessons where he would come in with a question, and the entire lesson would be based on that question, rather than me coming and saying, like, let's own this thing. Fantastic. Um, so I think that one was on, are you familiar with like Moser's circle problem? It's this famous thing where you have Tell the path. Tell us about it. Uh, so if, it's like if you're dividing up a circle in a certain way, uh, there's a sense in which like, you know, if, if you don't divide it at all, there's one big region. If you have two different points and you connect them, there's two regions. If you have three different points and you draw all of the connections between those points on the boundary of the sphere, horrible podcasting material, much better. <laughs> Like there's sections of the sphere and you start seeing this pattern one, two, four, eight, sixteen, uh, and you're like, okay, I see what that's powers of two. And then the next one is 31. It's right? not. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and it's tricky, right? Because by the time you're getting to 31, it means you're slicing the circle into 31 pieces. So there's that little part of your brain that's so sure you just missed a you piece. You just blew right? it. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's a really beautiful number of things connected in like that are very approachable to a high schooler to describe one, why this looks like powers of two early on what the pat pattern actually is and like why that pattern and powers of two coincide. Um, and there's one other power of two that shows up a little bit later, like on the 10th iteration, you see 256. And then after that, like <laughs> you don't see it anymore. And like, it's all really interesting. So that one I, I felt a little bit more proud of. And again, it was like with each new video, the tool was getting better uh -huh. as the tool was getting better, it became easier to make videos. Still, it's like an absurd way to make videos. Like in hindsight, if, if the goal was to make YouTube videos, I would have invested in learning like a more traditional animation mm -hmm. software, like After Effects or something like that. And also the videos would have come out less original as a result. So I don't know, it's like this uh, funny little trade-off. But by virtue of it having been not focused on, like, I want to be a YouTuber, which I think I think that's actually, like, if you go to, uh, I was a friend of mine who teaches young children was saying, when she asked the, the kids what they wanted to be when they grew up, like many in the classroom said YouTuber as the thing they wanted to be. So it is like the new... I don't know, like wanting to be a pop star variant in some way. Yeah, so you're, you're, you're creating your competition right now. <laughs> <laughs> but like that was not the mindset. Like yeah. I, uh, I actually, I think it took me a long time to even realize that YouTube consisted of channels that people subscribe mm -hmm. to. And it wasn't just like this box full of videos that were being suggested to me that I might like. And that like there's people behind those channels creating them, some of which are independent creators, not like associated with some large company. Like... I went a long time without actually realizing that in comparison to other like fresher YouTubers who I know who like knew exactly what the situation was, what they wanted and like were sort of working towards that. Um, so anyway, I, I'm going off on a lot of side tangents here. No, but this, is, this time, is great. Khan Academy was putting out this thing they called the talent search. Um, right. Some friends of mine pointed me to it. Um, I also was point. Let's see. There's a number of different ways I heard about it. some friends of me pointed to it. I also like very early on reached out to Henry Reich of Minute Physics, who just turns out to be the nicest guy in the world. Because when you're Henry Reich and you run a channel with like four million subscribers, people are going to be emailing you all the time. 
a lot of people are going to be like, hey, I have this video. Do you want to check out this video? And the rational thing to do would be say, look, right. kid, I'd love to, but like, I just don't have the time. I'm not going to not going to answer these emails. Henry, though, was nice enough to um, engage a little. Uh, you know, I think I framed it less on like, please watch this video of mine and more like I'm working on this animation tool. Is there any way I can maybe be helpful to like right. the stuff that you're doing? And this um, is after you've done one or two videos at this point. Yeah, yeah. Ex exactly. Like way early days. And he yeah. still sort of engages. Um, and, you know, he, he also asked, like, you know, where are you in life? What's your plan? Do you want to do something with these? And I mentioned kind of being at a point, uh, you know, finishing school where I had the freedom to explore. Right. I was not tied to things. Um, and I mentioned, like, I might try to poke various entities, like maybe Khan Academy or something like that to see if they need other contributors. Uh, and he asked if I had any contacts there and kind of put me in contact with some people just to have a conversation. And the conversation with them was more or less like, oh, we're doing this talent search thing. Like maybe you would want to right. contribute to that. But it, it just helps a lot to actually have sat down and had a discussion with them and realize we're sort of on the same page about like philosophies. And I got to be all enthusiastic about math as I am in right. a way that in retrospect, I realize I'm kind of this maybe breath of new, young, fresh air of just like optimism about like what one can do with the visual medium on the internet in what is otherwise like Khan Academy is inspiring, but like we were discussing earlier, any type of work translates to most of your time being spent yeah. on something that's not like the inspiring component. So like having someone else come in to like reinvigorate that I don't know. Maybe it's, you can feel no, it's it's super valuable to have that. And you know, we have that here as, as new people come in bringing some energy and excitement to stuff with it. You know, we've been doing this for 10 years mm -hmm. and then you see their energy, their excitement for it. And you remember why you enjoyed doing it to begin with. And then of course, new things start percolating as these new, new people come in with all their energy. So yeah, very important. Yeah. So, I mean, I owe a lot to Henry there. I also owe a lot to um, Cam Christensen at Khan Academy, who I think was uh, willing to be an advocate of mine, like very early on probably before I really deserved to be because I ended up, so one thing led to another where I ended up getting a job there and it was under these fellowship programs they had mm -hmm. where for most of the other fellowships, you know, there's like an electrical engineering fellow, a biology fellow where I thought was bring in an expert for one year to create content about that field and then, you know, do whatever afterwards. Um, and most of them were PhDs in whatever that field was like the biology or the chemistry one were coming freshly out of PhDs and that the electrical engineering one, had a PhD many years ago, but he had a whole like uh, a whole life of experience in it. And this was work. sort of his like pre-retirement gig was to like spend a year at Khan Academy. Um, so all of these people, and in comparison, like I like to think I'm good at math and know my stuff and and able to teach it. But at the same time, you don't have their resume. Exactly, yeah. I don't have that resume. Yeah, and so it was helpful that there was the possibility of a non-traditional route into the company. Um, which was a combination of like having sat down to meet them for lunch, thanks to Henry's uh, intro and their talent search program, like actively seeking people who are creating edu educational content in some way that they might not know about, right? So is there um, a lesson there in how to find a job in a company you want to be part of? Yes, yes, there is, which is the people are much more important than your resume. Like getting those conversations in some way or another which often requires a lot of poking and a lot of prodding. The, oh, totally. Same thing goes for the the like two internships I was referencing before. Like the one when I was a freshman going into it, they mostly just rejected freshmen out of hand. But it was because of like having the right conversations with the right people that like there was even consideration after that. Yeah. And it was through connections of that one that led me to the one afterwards. It was not submitting a resume from out of the blue. So 
in some ways, it sucks that the world works this way because, like, wouldn't it be better if it were purely meritocratic and all you have to do is focus on gaining the skills that would be relevant to the job that you're going into? And in the end, that matters, and that's, like, a hard floor requirement. But, like, what what really... Ah, what makes the difference is just having those right conversations. and It certainly the, helps, yeah. I mean, the reason I'm kind of talking this tone, I just don't think that's fair because a lot of people just don't have access have that access right yeah um and like obviously it doesn't hurt to be coming from stanford like a, na a name school in that right. way like that's not fair there's uh, a lot of the smartest people i know aren't coming from like named schools in that way but the advice there would the advice concretely would be don't be shy about putting yourself in front of people um and like i think a lot of students don't realize the way that email works in more of a business context is like it's okay to like poke two or three times on a thread that has been silent for a bit. Like that's not terribly rude. It might be mildly annoying depending on the content of the initial message, but it is not the same as if you are at like a, a party, right? And like you go to try to talk to someone and they and they like brush you off and go somewhere else. And like you go to talk to them again. Like that's just demonstrating social ineptitude. So I think that very human instinct makes people resist doing what they actually should in order to open the doors that need to be open for the career path they want. Yeah, I think um, that's right. But I would also add to that, like, be very deliberate and thoughtful and make it clear that you're not just spamming the world. And oh, not, yeah. And don't write like you're writing texts to your friends. And <laughs> mm, Super important. Yeah. Like, uh, baseline, be, demonstrate that you are valuable. Yeah. That should be the substance. Like, I, yeah. I, am, I am describing the form of the interaction, yeah. but the substance of it should be, like, a clear demonstration you will be valuable to them. If it's just, like... Hey, dude, I'd love a job. Do you have any openings that you are you're you're offering nothing? Right. Yeah. Um, you're asking for a favor, which maybe you're talking to someone nice, but more often than not, like yeah, that's not going to work. And out. being careful thinking about like what is the right way in is can also be helpful. Uh, mm. you know, we have someone here who saw a listing of ours. Uh, actually, you know, he's putting together our podcasts. RJ here runs our, <laughs> our sound here. And uh, as I remember, he, he saw a listing of ours and then went on LinkedIn and looked for people like with backgrounds like his in our company and reached out to that person and said, you know, what's your job like there? Mm. And, you know, that's a that's an intelligent way to go about, first of all, learning something. But also it's a, a good entree is finding somebody uh, in the company that you might resonate with and, and mm. taking that as an entry point. That's crazy smart. Yeah. Like I will say the the way that you will never get a job at Khan Academy is to try to reach out to Sal Khan individually. Like <laughs> that would just be very dumb. Um, so in that same way, it's like, yeah, finding the people who you might resonate with. That's, yeah. yeah, that's very smart. Very good advice. So you you get to Khan Academy. Yeah. And they actually let you do math stuff. Don't they already have all this math stuff? Yeah, this this is actually a question for them. I don't know why that I mean, maybe it's just the thought they wanted to they were at a point where they wanted to veer away from leaning so heavily on Sal putting out the content. Right. Because like he is so many other things. He is like the public face of the company. Maybe most importantly, he is the CEO of the company. So that is enough to eat up two times any normal humans working hours already. <laughs> so they thought of him also being like. Uh, the content, not a content creator, mm -hmm. the content creator, like I think they just recognize as unsustainable. So in that way, again, the timing was good because, you know, a couple of years earlier, Khan Academy would be like probably closed minded to that because they've got a good thing going. And even then, I think there's just a lot of luck 
and goodwill that ended up going to like being open to having me contribute some math stuff. But it's really like their multivariable calculus content. I think that they had listing a fellowship there just because even though there was some stuff, it was, I think there had been a lot of requests from people for it to be more filled out. Um, you know, because math is their bread and butter. So you'll have students going through their, their really like high quality, like high school algebra and like calculus and stuff. And then suddenly it just feels like this drop off of like, oh, videos that Sal once made that aren't necessarily in a progression, like leave a lot out. Okay. Um, also, I wasn't just doing videos. I was like writing articles, um, kind of, this was part of their experiment in engaging with different types of media as well. Um, so for people who, you know, prefer that as the way to consume content, like scrolling through a reading or looking stuff up, uh, there's some advantages there. In hindsight, I kind of wish I spent less time on articles because I do think the videos end up reaching people more. Um, and I should say these were very different. So which videos. one teaches? Which one teaches people more? <sighs> well, that's a good question because, like, I like to learn from reading more than watching videos, which is highly contradictory given what I do yeah. now. Um, what I okay. I'm not going to answer the question concretely. Good thing about the articles, you can embed questions in there so that there's a little like uh, check if you understand it kind of situation. Um, you can abuse those, but I think used right, that actually can really make it such that uh, it's a much more active experience going through the article than just like passively letting information flow into your head. Um, the videos, what I think I realized is like articles are good for those who kind of already know it but want to brush up. And then videos are friendly. You like have this human voice and you're like walking through the problem. And especially the con style way of doing things is that you are, if you like make a mistake in the video, you know, you're working through some worked example, you're not just brushing it off like, oh, and you could do these computations. You're like, well, let's do these computations. Yeah. It's going to take 10 minutes. When you do it, it's going to take a long time. So I don't want to pretend like it's not going to take time by skipping over it. And while you're doing it, you make some little dumb error. I make dumb errors all the time. And instead of being like, well, it's video, let's edit that out. Nope, we're just doing it live. Uh, let's go back, correct that error. How did I identify that there was an error at all? All of that stuff, it feels friendly. And it's something that is going to much more accurately mirror what the student feels as they're going through it. Whereas like a polished article, it, 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 there's no room for that to be like, I'm writing this article. And I'm like, oh, I made a mistake. <laughs> like, let's, let's walk through the correction of that. It just feels really awkward in writing in a way that doesn't with a live presentation. So, so the video is more human. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know which of those do you learn more from? I have no idea, but that's the that's the benefit trade off that I see. Okay. So you're you you wrote some articles, you make some videos. And, and go ahead. Yeah. And by night and weekends, I also am like adding to my own channel, right? Mm -hmm. So this is all very different stuff from three blue and brown, but I still have that janky animation tool that I enjoy making some visually driven explanations with. Um, so again, it's like very slow going because I have a main job and I was like dedicated to trying to do a really good job there so that they would, really so that they would like me and I could stick around for more than that one year. Right. Um, cause I was kind of starting to realize that there are probably paths into doing math outreach that are not going via academia in some mm -hmm. way. Um, and I, I mean, you're talking like, about math outreach here. You're on one of the biggest stages in the world at yeah, Khan Academy, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, that. it was great. It was absolutely great, right? Like, you, you, it's hard to imagine something better than that uh, as far as, like, coming straight out of college, having this vague sense of wanting, like, math outreach. And you're like, you're at Khan Academy. You're making freaking math videos for Khan Academy. Like, how did this happen, right? Um, and uh, But at the same time, I also kind of wanted my own platform just because it was a different style. And I, and I, I still do, like, firmly believe that there is something to be added in having explanations out there that are not – 
taking the old style of teaching of like writing things by hand in front of people um, and just putting that online and instead saying, if video is the medium, like what is the fundamentally different way to even represent math, right? By virtue of that. What are the things that otherwise you have to awkwardly take a visual in your head, translate it into formal reasoning, communicate that formal reasoning to a student so that they can translate it into a visual in their own head, which requires all the overhead of having them learn formal reasoning, right? So I think there was one video I made while I was at Khan Academy about like the Hilbert curve. And at some point in the middle, I wanted to describe continuity. And I didn't want to just say like, you can draw it without lifting your pencil up. Like I, I kind of wanted like, okay, let's describe continuity as mathematicians teach it. Um, so I did basically what is like the uh, Delta epsilon definition, but without ever referencing like Delta and epsilon, it was all just like circles shrinking and um, uh, like a very, a, a very visually first driven explanation in a way that I think, you know, if you think it through, should be approachable to a high schooler uh, and didn't seem needlessly formal. And it was just the kind of thing that could not be written down. Like it was necessarily visually. It yeah, wasn't just visually aided, right? You need stuff to move on the screen. It's not just a picture, it's motion. Yeah. And you could, I think you probably could do it really well with pictures if you wanted to make it into a cartoon, uh, like a comic book. I yeah. bet uh, that kind of thing could be done. But it's at that point, it just becomes like pleasing to make it move on screen. Like, <laughs> uh, it just feels good. It's like there's an entertainment value to that and a... I don't know it a feeling of like math being powerful because you're you're manipulating the stuff in front of you rather than just like imagining it being manipulated um so that's something i'm kind of doing on the side and channel starts to grow a little bit more because when i joined khan academy i mean it was i don't know there's probably like a thousand subscribers or something like that and you know at some point we're there where it's like maybe forty thousand fifty thousand so not like some giant youtube channel but not nothing mm -hmm. um and it was also a feeling of like, I publish a video to my channel, I publish a video to Khan Academy's channel, more people are watching the one on my channel, just because the nature of Khan Academy as a YouTube channel is like, even though it's got, I don't know, 3 million subscribers or whatever it might be, you're not actively following it because there's just piles yeah. of new content coming on. The purpose of the channel is to host a library. Right. And so the, the flip side of that is, whereas like I post a video to my channel, it gets all of the views in the early days and then quickly trails off anything to Khan Academy like slowly increases and like goes through these undulating cycles during the school season because is, it's, is this yeah. still true for you now? Is that, well, I mean, has that tail gotten longer as I there's, I think at this point, the thickness of the tail on the content that is like targeted towards a specific learner, like a series that I did on linear algebra or a series I did on calculus or one on like Fourier transforms, that kind of stuff. Um, I think has it has a thicker tail, mm -hmm. but it also has that nice phenomenon of like a big hit early on of like a couple hundred thousand people in their first few days that are actively following the channel. Right. Um, so that. Yeah. And but then for other type of content, that's just like, here's an interesting proof. on like an interesting thing. Those are thinner tails because there's not you're not searching for that per se. Right. Um, and. They have their place, and I, I see an important place for that, but it, it doesn't have the same thick tail. Okay. So how – you come to a point where you've got to make – you make a decision. You didn't yeah. have to make a decision, <laughs> but you, you made a decision to, to leave this this huge stage that you, that you were on. Yeah, and I think it's kind of because I started to feel the sizes of the stages weren't that drastically different. Um, like the audience size for – 
you know, multivariable calculus content or, or whatever other content I was going to create. I was going to start doing some linear algebra and some probability and there were other plans for what I would do with them. Um, and even though in the grand scheme of things, it would be bigger. It wasn't that much bigger than on, if I just did stuff on my own channel, the advantage of Khan Academy, huge advantage. You just get to put out a lot more content because the style is conducive to making a couple videos in an afternoon rather than like toiling for a couple weeks over just one. Um, but yeah, I, I ultimately did decide to uh, basically like leave Khan Academy at the end of that fellowship rather than sticking around. And, and they, they were like, they did end up inviting me to like continue being a contributor indefinitely. Um, and I think part of the reason for it is if you think about what you add to the world slash how you feel about yourself, I think there's a big difference between doing something that someone else might have done if you weren't there. Like, oh, if I wasn't there, someone else would have been making the linear algebra content for Khan Academy. Maybe it would have been Sal, maybe it would have been some other new hire. Um, like somehow, some way or another, that content will be, end up getting put there. But then for the stuff on my channel, you know, where I, it really was, it's not to say like other people haven't done things like this before. There's a lot of like visually driven math explanations out there. But in some ways, I, I did kind of want it to be something new and distinctive of explanations that otherwise wouldn't exist uh, or just content that wouldn't exist if I wasn't doing them. And <clears throat> even if like Khan Academy as an institution will always be much more influential than like whatever I do or whatever, like an organization I create uh, starts to do. The That's, fact that I, I want to back up, I want to put a pin in that. That's not obvious <laughs> to me, but keep going. Well, yeah, well, at, at that time, at that time, I would okay. say that that's absolutely how I would have phrased <laughs> things. Um, uh, oh, where was I? B basically, basically, it's this difference of, uh, there's a word for yeah. this that I'm, I'm struggling to think of right now. Do you, where it's like, is it additivity? It's the, it's the difference between just saying, like, what is the value you add to the world mm -hmm. versus if you do a diff between the universe as it is and the universe without you, what is that diff, yeah. right? You know, the thought being, if you work at Google, great in the universe where you didn't work at Google, someone else would have gotten that job. Yeah. And if anything, actually, in the universe without you, someone would have gotten that job, someone else would have gotten their job, someone else would have gotten their job, and you have this feeling that like everyone would have been better off. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, the, it's a wonderful life, mm. you know, to see the world without you. Yeah, I, this is a very strong personal motivation for me as well, so I can, I can certainly empathize as well. Whereas if you like decide to start your own thing in some way even though and that doesn't have to be like starting google right if it's mm -hmm. just you're doing something different it's just a it it no longer makes sense to compare in terms of absolute impact or absolute value in that way so and also it was another one of those things where i felt free enough to experiment right i think a lot of people are at a point in their lives where they're tied to something they're tied to a family they're tied to debts they're tied uh to a location because of like a sick loved one, whatever it might be, you're tied to something. And I, you know, I, I wasn't able to like truly empathize with what it feels like to be tied to things in that way, but I know enough people and I've seen enough in the world to know that like that is a phenomenon. And like when you are young, just like relish the fact that there are not such knots around your ankles. And so, yeah, I just, I just wanted to give it a shot. And again, big shout out to Henry Reich here for being very helpful and supportive. Cause I was like talking through a lot of this with him and he was kind enough to sort of lay out the landscape of what does it mean? If you want to like pursue your YouTube channel as a career, what goes into that? Like how, to, how have other people gone about it? Like what is the, just what's the lay of the land? And that, 
that's very helpful, just getting more information down. So you had, um, you had s- some confidence as you were leaving Con that you could actually make a real go of this. This wasn't, I'm going to sit in my garage and see what happens, but you had, you yeah. had an example for one. And, exactly. And it, right? Like, you know, you contrast this with a lot of the early educational YouTubers where they start creating these things long before there's any notion of monetization, certainly, and certainly any notion of like doing this as a full time. They were necessarily passion projects, right? Like Henry working on minute phases, necessarily passion project, like Destin working on Smarter Every Day. It's just this sense where like maybe you think vaguely there's something valuable to having a voice to a large number of people. That's always going to be valuable no matter what world you live in, even if there's not some clear like uh, statistic thrown at you that's going to translate into dollars. But still, it's a very different vibe from like people who go into YouTube today where there's this like knowledge that it can be a career, right? And that in many ways, I actually think that's kind of a negative effect because if from day one, your goal is to like use the videos as a vehicle towards making money, um, I can see this in like the way that some channels operate and some of them do in fact like get popular and it works for them. And I just don't like their content as much. It doesn't feel like a passion project. Um, yeah, I had that's a, it. a teacher like, once tell me that anybody, if, if anybody's in education for the money, they're probably not that good at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, but like on the other hand, I'm also like pretty capitalistic at heart where I do yeah. think that like money doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. And quite often if it's done right and you're like translating value between two different parties, like it could be the mediator and an indication that like you're actually doing something meaningful. And like the oh. fact that there is a career to be made out of it is precisely what it means for it to be adding value to the world in in some idealistic sense of the word at least now that so. i strongly agree with and mm. i mean you, you can imagine having been doing this for 15 years the number of times i've been in circles with people who don't understand this it's uh, uncommon in math yeah. right because um or education and think, well and and i think that makes a lot of sense for education because the way that you're adding value in education let's say to let's say to an early high schooler i'll give you an example mm-hmm. um I think ninth grade, my calculus teacher hands me this wonderful book that he didn't need to hand me. He just saw that I was interested in math. It was called The Art of Problem Solving, Volume (laughs) 2. And it added a lot of value to my life in that moment. It was a great teacher. (laughs) It was. uh, Yo, you would love this teacher also, by the way. Um, He he was also very influential. So the combination of like him slash like indirectly you through that book, like very influential. And ultimately, I can say a lot of value came from like not just those lessons, but the lessons that they led me to learn more from. And and I, I mean value in an economic sense, like mm-hmm. my ability to like add money to the world, whether that was going to be as a software engineer or like doing what I'm doing now, whatever it might be. There's economic value in that exchange. But because it's education, that's many years removed, right? Like my ninth grade self versus my like um, adult self. There's so many years there. So unless there existed some sort of financial instrument that was going to account for the fact that there's that long a delay, um, I, I totally understand why education doesn't fall into other similar categories. And instead, there's usually two different routes for like why it would be a monetized or three different routes, I'll say, for like why it, why it would be a monetizable thing. Either the parents are willing to invest in their kid's future so you can have a direct relationship with the parents. The public, in some sort of vague sense, like has an investment in its society's future. So like you're, you're able to do that exchange with the public, usually in the form of like governments or local governments, or you're talking to adult learners who are capable of like doing that exchange directly for themselves. Um, 
or you have Bill Gates put you on a stage and. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's I think that's an instance that's of the public a version like, of the public. Yeah. 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 That like philanthropy, even though it's um, it's like obviously a very different thing from like government funding. And in some ways, yeah. I actually better for like education. Uh, that still is an instance of people investing in like society's future broadly. And it, so it, like if if you're adding value to children in this way, you have to be able to ask, like, who is the individual who is willing to front that difference in time? Because, you know, if you're adding value to someone by like giving them a nice massage in that moment, like, great, that happens all over the course of like one hour. So there's no trickiness about making that a financial exchange. I don't know why I chose that example. But... <laughs> <laughs> a good math lesson is in many ways like a good massage. No, no, that's not a analogy. <laughs> well, I, maybe I don't know. I mean, this is getting back to the entertainment versus education thing, right? Oh yeah, that's a that's a whole other. Well, and honestly though, that I think aptly describes the way that my operation works. Is that, well, kind of, kind of, at least for one half of it. Like, um, the way that things can work for me is that the videos are entertaining. But it's not entertaining in the way of like, oh, it's flashy and has inside jokes. And then we're just like putting these lessons, but it's really entertaining because of the jokes. Mm -hmm. The hope is that the thing that's entertaining is that moment of understanding something, that that brings with it a very specific kind of emotion that people want. And if you're giving people an emotion that they want, that is how I would define entertainment. Um, and rather than choosing sadness in the case of like writing a tragedy or rather than choosing like delight in the case of writing comedy, that specific emotion that I'm shooting for is the aha yeah. emotion when you finally feel like something clicks. Yeah. Um, so then that makes people want to follow a channel. And then if you're running a channel, you know, you can, there's, there's multiple different means of like how that can translate to like revenue in some way. And the like classic one, if you have an audience would be some form of advertising, but like monetization through advertising is monetization as entertainment, not as education. Um, and then something where it is a little bit more direct with the people, uh, that gets a little bit hazier on is that because it's educational or, or is it because it's um, entertaining? Like a, a good portion of my operation ends up going through Patreon, which is just a form of people directly contributing for the content voluntarily, basically. I mean, they get some like perks and extra things for doing that. But more often than not, it's just people who think that it's a valuable thing or worthwhile for them. And they're willing to kind of choose to subscribe to it in a, in a payment-oriented so, sense. So how does that work? So I, I'm sure lots of people are listening are like, Wait, this is a job? He gets paid? Uh, yeah. How does that? Well, so Patreon is a whole interesting, I think, reflection of a broader phenomenon on the internet. I mean, it it's a pretty young company, but short answer is like a lot of different independent creators, whether that's YouTubers like me, uh, blog writers like Tim Urban, who does Wait But Why, or artists, you know, sometimes people who either create music or like painted art or whatever it might be, where like people are enjoying their content in some way. Um, you know, you can you can have if you have a Patreon page, it would mean that people can like pledge money to be your patron in some way. And sometimes this is in a That's form of basically like a form of philanthropy of like mm -hmm. there's nothing for it. It's just that if you think this is something good and you want more of it to exist, like have at it. So like the people that I support on Patreon, um, you know, there's like Nikki Case who does these explorable explanations where I just want him to keep doing that. It is like a fundamentally different type of explanation to be put out there. There's not going to be like a good means of monetizing that through the traditional means like advertising. Uh, but he's like talented at it. And I want that to just keep happening. So it's partly just like my own way of ensuring that there will be more things like that. 
So right. it's so, similar in spirit to a Kickstarter, but more of a kind of a just, not just sustain. building a one thing, but sustaining exactly. a thing over time. Although Patreon really likes to emphasize, like, we're, we're not crowdfunding. Yeah. It is a, <laughs> I, don't know why, I don't know why they're on that platform. I don't actually know what they mean by it, but they're always saying, like, we're not crowdfunding, whatever that means. Um, I think it's that they do want to draw a distinction between the notion of, like, a sustained value exchange versus, like, mm -hmm. a, like, just get something up and running. Um I don't know. But often, you know, like uh, if people do support on Patreon, you might give them some added thing. Like in my case, people have access to early content where if I'm creating like a series, uh, I often want to like create all of the things in that series and then publish it in one batch. Then while that's being created, you know, I, I let patrons see it. One, as a perk. Two, to get their feedback. Because like yeah. these are your demonstrably biggest fans and like it, I value their words a lot, right? Um, and then there's some other things just like... Uh, like the highest tier ones, I'll like give a personal phone call to to, mm -hmm. to say thank you, and also to get to know like who are you? Why are sure. you willing to like? Uh, so you, you don't have to do this. <laughs> like, why are you? Um, what have you learned in those calls? Uh, so I've learned that the series where I actually address things that are more student focused, like I, I've done only two of them: one on linear algebra, one on calculus. Those make the biggest difference for people. Um, and I might count a little bit I did about like neural networks as sort of like a half series. Like it's things like that that drive people rather than thinking, oh, this is just valuable for me and I want to keep it going so that I can have more of that content. Instead, think like this is a valuable thing for the world, right? And that ends up becoming kind of a fundamental different shift in the motives for why you would part with your hard-earned dollars, right? Yeah. Um, and also uh, just a strong diversity of where people are coming from, right? ranging from like a retired pathologist who just in his retirement wanted to get more into math in a way that he never had before to like uh you know people in law school or a similar deal of like they never really thought of themselves as math people but like we're starting to come around to like oh maybe this is a discipline i might be interested in um lots of people who work in tech i think that might be less of a surprise multiple en oil engineers from saudi arabia which is interesting interesting um, <laughs> so like just it, just diversity, I guess. It, it runs the gamut in a surprising way. Yeah, we had a group of oil engineers come come visit here. Oh, this is eight nine years ago, and mm -hmm. wow, they were fantastic. I mean, they were they were super. They came came over from Saudi, and they were super excited about everything we're doing and excited about math. And so mm -hmm. I, I hear you say that, and I have memories of those guys. Um, it was, that was a wonderful couple of days we spent with them. Were they just what, what were they doing coming over? They were actually looking at building something in Saudi to train math kids. So they came over here, and you know I. I introduced them to people at Math Counts at AMC and at some of the some of the summer camps, and then they came out here to San Diego, and spent some time with us here, and they, they I mean they ended up building a few classes, a few camps um, for some students back in Saudi Arabia, but they were they were also I mean they uh, at least two of them had been educated here in the states, but they were clearly they were geeks. Just you know <laughs> we could get to sit and and talk geeky stuff. It was it was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. So how many? So if you don't mind my asking, how many? How many patrons do you have? It's like four thousand. Wow, that's um, fantastic. So it is, it's a, it's like I, I I cannot be thankful enough for this fact because it is just such a voluntary thing, yeah. um, and I just love the idea that the internet is moving a little bit more in the direction of things being funded through these direct relationships yeah. rather than through adver through advertising intermediaries. I have very like mixed opinions on advertising. I think it like can be done well and it's possible to be a win-win-win, but just nine times out of 10, the content will be worse if that is the way that things are um, 
incentivized rather than on something direct. So yeah, well, we don't have advertising on AOPS, so yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we also have a direct to consumer. You know, the, the people who are using it are covering are covering the bills. So is most of your money then is coming from the patrons and less so from. I mean, you do have advertising. Uh, disclaimer: yeah. We were we we have been an advertiser, uh, <laughs> which yeah, that's an example I think of a, of a good one because I want more people <laughs> to use AOPS, right? Um, and rather than say like use Harry's razors, like the sort of unrelated <laughs> thing, um, I, I don't know about them in particular, but just the, right. like that something that advertises thing. on a lot of different exactly. Media. Yeah. Um, so uh, something else that's really interesting inspiring i'm not sure what the right word is about your videos they're long boy yeah okay well so i started to like jump right in but this, yeah. this cuts to something that surprised me a lot way early on i was one of the earliest videos i did ended up being like 17 minutes mm -hmm. and i was like boy this is no one's gonna watch a 17 minute video that's forever like i'm just yeah. gonna totally lose people's patience oh well it's worth experimenting and i really can't think of a way to like cram it down i want this all as a coherent storyline and that was probably the first in a trajectory of what slowly led me to realize that people seem to want the longer videos. Those are the ones that they actually enjoy more. And, um, you know, any metric that I look at for like, was a video successful in terms of like how many people it's reached or positivity of the comments or like like dislike ratio or was there like a Patreon boost yeah. during the same time that that was published, whatever it might be, there's just this correlation between the length of the video and it being a good video, however you define good. And I think the reason for that, um, one, if you're an audience of these videos in the first place, that is a filtration towards people who kind of want to learn stuff yeah. and are willing to engage with it more. Two, I think, again, there's just a general shift in any kind of entertainment away from like the short form snappy um, videos that might have characterized YouTube early days towards something that you're sitting down to enjoy in the same way that you sit down to watch like Netflix, right? Um, it's a given that a TV show is going to be a half hour at least, right? If not an hour, um, it's a given that a movie is going to be two hours. This is just something that we seek when we're looking to yeah. sit down and be entertained. I think YouTube's kind of moving in that direction. YouTube wants itself to move in that direction based on the fact sure. that they like, I'm at least this is the rumor and I, I'll believe it that the algorithm that they have wants to optimize for watch time so rather than oh. saying like, and when I say algorithm, I mean, when they're choosing what to suggest to you, or when you search something, they're choosing what to put at the top, how they need to have some notion of one video is better than another, right? Um, and all, in particular, better for you, but insofar mm -hmm. as they know that you want to learn about the Fourier transform, either because you're searching for it, or they want to recommend it to you, of the thousands of videos about Fourier transforms out there, how did they decide which one to show? Um, I think it used to be something closer to, uh, well, there would be a number of factors, but the number of views it got would be a, a, a weighty factor in that because that's probably a sign a lot of people like it. But that ends up incentivizing a lot of weird behavior because yeah. if you think of, like, for a given individual spending 60 minutes on your site to maximize the total number of views that happen, you would get many more views happening if they had this crappy experience of like clicking on one video, watching it for a minute, realizing it's not what yeah. they want, clicking on another video, watching it for one minute, rather than clicking on three separate 20 minute videos that they watch in their entirety. So as YouTube decides which video to recommend, they don't consider how many views does it have. They consider how much watch time does it have. And in your little creator dashboard, when they're showing you statistics on videos, they're very deliberate about making the one that's up, in, up front watch time. 
even though everyone then clicks to see like, no, what are the views? Because it's usually very hard to, if you see like this video has 4 million minutes of watch time, you're like, um, what does that, does that <laughs> right? What does that mean? Um, but I have a good metric for this actually. Yeah. Uh, so when you see uh, watch uh, minutes, the natural thing to do, let's say it's watch minutes over a month, mm -hmm. divide that by the total number of minutes in that month so that you're looking at watch oh, minutes per minute. Because really they're not watch minutes, they're people watch minutes. That's they're, they're watch, they're awesome. Minutes, right? What is that number for you these days? For me, uh, oh Jesus. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll tell you the heuristic is that it's about 25 um, people per million watch minutes per month. So if you have a million watch minutes in one month, what that okay. means is that in an average moment, so it'll be more in some moments, less in some moments, but the average moment, 25 people are watching your content or consuming your content in some okay. way. Um, so this last month has been a little bit of a slower month because there hasn't been much publishing. But right now I'm around 16 million watch minutes in a given month. So Whoa. that would mean six, 16 times 25. Yeah, you um, get 400 people watching right now. Yeah, so on a given, so like peak hours, it might be more like 800, slower hours, that might be more like 100. But like the average moment, there's 400 people somewhere out there consuming the content. So it springs to mind a nice visual of like the, a lecture hall that just exists that some people are coming into, some people are walking out of, um, and you're just wondering how many people are in there. Uh, so I wish YouTube would present that if it, oh, would, it would show you watch cool. minutes per minute, um, because like that's what you can get your head around and that's why anyone that they look at watchmen it's like what the heck does 16 million mean and then they look down at the number of views they're like ah okay but really it's good to think about watch minutes because like you do want it to be the case that people are spending more time on your content rather than more clicks on your content right so i think that is a good direction to move in and it's just a it's like a design problem of making people feel it viscerally right i mean that's what you do right you should be able to solve this problem for them yeah, no, I, well, <laughs> hey, if, if, I had, if I had a more direct managerial control over a team of engineers at YouTube, there would be, there would be a few different ways that the site operated. <laughs> but uh, I don't have that. Yeah, those visuals would be a lot better. <laughs> so who's in this auditorium, this auditorium of people who are watching your videos? Who Great are those people? Question. Great question. I mean, so we can answer it in a statistical sense of looking at demographics where um, – it is uh, strongly disproportionately male. I don't know what it is for your audience, um, but it's actually, let me pull up demographics because it's, it's going to be like 90% um, or something like that. And at first, I think I first saw the statistics. I'm like, geez, like am I, <laughs> is it that like unapproachable? Am I, am I doing something that's um, makes it distasteful to female viewers? I, I, I don't know. Is it the fact that I'm like a male narrator? And then I was brought much more comfort by the fact that this is actually quite common among all, not just math, but like science YouTube mm -hmm. channels, is this strong disproportion. Um, yeah, let me, viewer gender. Uh, boy, yeah, 93%. Um, That's at striking. first I was thinking like maybe male narrator makes a difference there, but then uh, PBS Infinite Series, I was chatting with the host of that who's female, and her gender ratio was actually worse than mine. Um, but okay, so that's one fact, strongly mm -hmm. male. Hope that changes. Uh, another fact, the biggest demographic spike when you kind of divide them into these age buckets is 25 to 34 year olds. Interesting. Um, yeah, so it's that first and then not far behind is the 18 to 24 year olds. And so I think what a lot of that is, is it kind of like yuppies 
you know, the people who are, I, I always think of them as working in tech, but maybe they do, maybe they don't. But people who are math nerds just out in the world who kind of want to be learning math, but not so much that you're going to take a course or read a textbook right. on it, right? You want to self-identify as being the sort of person who spends his free time learning math. And like watching long, in-depth vid YouTube videos about that is a pretty good middle ground between doing nothing and like reading yeah, textbooks. And you get the aha fix. Yeah, right. yeah. I, I like to think I give them yeah. this aha fix, right? Um, oh, clearly and, they keep watching. I mean. <laughs> oh, yeah. Jumping back to the, like the longer videos thing. Another reason that they're long is... I sometimes have no idea how to make it shorter if I'm actually going to get to that aha moment without it feeling hollow. You know, I think the longest video I made was 30 minutes. Um, and it's, it's about the Leibniz formula for pi, uh, which one minus a third plus a fifth minus a seventh yeah, plus nice. a ninth, which goes to pi fourths. And there's a really beautiful way to see how this is connected to circles that involves counting how many lattice points are within a given distance from the origin. And one way to count it, you have the sense it's roughly the area of a circle. Uh -huh. um, another way to count it, you get into number theory and some algebraic number theory. And like prime numbers show themselves in this storyline and the way the prime numbers factor inside the complex plane. And you go through just a lot of really interesting things. And what pops out, and it's the only reason it pops out is because of a certain regularity in the primes, which is a really delightful thing, um, is this Leibniz formula for pi. And you could prove the formula in, I could do a two minute video, one minute video, if you just draw up the right integral. Uh -huh. But it like gives no insight about the circle. So to like actually give that satisfying feeling, I had like, I toiled over that script. And I think it, its initial form would have been like a 50 minute video. And then I like, <laughs> tried to like reframe some things, reframe some things. And I felt like, unless I'm really gonna rush through points that I don't wanna rush through, this is all I got, <laughs> right? Similar thing happened on the Bitcoin video where I wanted to explain how it worked. And hopefully in a way that contrasted with most content out there on Bitcoin, not yeah. being about like how anything technically interesting, but just being on like, boy, did you see its price? It's like, sure, sure. But like the, there's actually some something to discuss about the technology here to actually communicate that. That the problem it actually solved. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, and being like a 25 minute video. And even though like you can make a five minute video about Bitcoin that quote unquote shows how it works to do it in the way that like I had in mind. Um, I just honestly don't know how to make it shorter. So like, it's a good thing people seem to like those because I, I don't know, I would be at a loss otherwise. I would, I would be compromising the genuine yeah. aha fix. So to talk about this, the, the pro you mentioned a script there. What's your process? How do you build these things? Oh yeah, sure, sure. So I typically, um, I'll typically write an outline first. Well, okay, maybe the first step is to go for lots of long walks with a notebook <laughs> and sketch things out where you have some loose sense of like, what is the thing that you want to explain, right? What is what is that point, the aha point that you want to get someone to? Um, either have an answer to that question or have the answer like, what is the core visual around which this entire video is going to revolve? Um, so like I toiled for a while and I knew I wanted to do something about the Fourier transform and I, I was just like in a lot of writer's block. And then when I actually was able to sit down and put the thing out or, or write out this, the a proper script, it was only after stumbling on, this is the, the visual instrument that I want everything to be revolving around, like stumbling across what that would be. Mm. So then from there, um, you know, it's just putting words on a page to, you know, you, you try to empathize with the viewer for like, what do they know? What don't they know? What are the points where there's high cognitive load? Right. Mm -hmm. And during those points, let's make sure there's not too much information density in the sentences early on. It's OK to have high information density because that's sort of a 
that's a more exciting moment. You want to get right. people excited about the topic. Later, it's okay to have high information density because you want to have that fact of like pleasing. It's sort of pleasing to know something and then be told that thing again, right? <laughs> in like this weird way. Um, and to be told it fast, not fast, but like with it, with more density in it, but then for the middle portion. So like thinking through. And you're, are you thinking about these things as you're crafting the story? As I write it. Yeah. As I write okay. it. Um, like, uh, and you know, that, that's the portion that it's so variable on how long it takes. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, once that's there, then I get to animating it, which, um, sometimes, so I do everything programmatically for the animations. Um, and sometimes that'll involve first doing a little bit of like the more infrastructural work. Like, uh, when I did something on neural networks, step one, implement an actual neural network. <laughs> and step two, um, like make all of the components of the code running that neural network correspond to some visual that's happening, right? So that if I want to just say like, I'm feeding this data into the neural network and let it propagate forward, that's not just something the computer's implicitly doing, but it's animating it while doing mm -hmm. so, right? Um, and then once that infrastructure is in place, it can make it much faster to put together, like for this particular scene where I'm describing this particular thing, I want this, this, and this visual to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and I think as time has gone on, I've gotten a little bit more picky about wanting the visuals to be well aligned with the narration. And this is not for pedagogical value. I think this is purely for entertainment value is, you know, when I say this number over here, I want something to be happening to that number over there. Yeah. Or when I uh, say two different words that correspond to things that are going to show up on the screen, I want them to show up at the exact moment that I'm saying the words for those things. Uh, just because I think there's something entertaining about that alignment that <sighs> I'll bet it's, it has more pedagogical value than you're giving it credit for. Um, well, I mean, maybe people stay the, with it. People understand it a little bit better because they're not having to think. What is he referring to? Pronouns are hard. So <laughs> anything you can do that emphasizes what pronoun, what the pronouns referring to. Well, so, OK, I agree with you in a lot of respects there, Richard. Like you don't have to think. Great. Lower cognitive load. The downside of that, I actually think you learn more from things that require parsing. Um, cause you have to engage with it in your own way. Uh, it's kind of, but I mean, depends on what you have to actually parse, right? You're, if you're parsing a concept, parsing an idea is different than you don't want them to have to spend that cognitive load on something trivial. Like what was he talking about when he said it? Uh, you... Hmm. Where I, so, but what I might say is there could be instances where having to have the state of a problem in your mind, not resting on the fact that it is on screen like because it's already in your mind and uncomfortably forced to be in there because of poor writing right because it's there your mind is able to mull over it in different ways than when all of that state is happening on the screen like when you're reading i don't know some usamo geometry problem that doesn't have pictures and it's describing all of these things very precisely so you're like writing out the picture yourself and drawing mm -hmm. the picture yourself i think there's something that happens in the action of drawing it yourself that's you interesting. Know, everyone's had this moment of like, you're starting to draw the triangle that's describing like, oh, wait, wait, no, this isn't realistic because they, they describe this constraint. Yeah. So you scratch it out and you start drawing another diagram. Those little moments um, make it something that is your own. And like, that's already starting that's to engage with the substance of the problem. But if, if I make a video about like some USAMO geometry problem and the picture that I'm drawing on screen is just already the perfect one, like you don't have that, yeah. that little moment of engagement. Um, so... I do think there is a loss, but uh, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a little tongue in cheek because obviously I value it because I do it and yeah. I spend a lot of time on like making it so that there is that kind of 
strong alignment between what the narration is and what the visuals are. And I, maybe the reason to do that is just so that I can carry more people to that aha moment. Mm -hmm. um, and I try to, I emphasize a lot in the videos like that I don't think watching videos is enough. Um, and it might be better to do that with actions rather than words. One video we did recently, actually, I, I kind of like this. This was one of the first ones written by a new a new team member of Three Below and Brown. And in the middle of it, we start going down this path that is wrong, but we don't like <laughs> tell anyone that it's wrong. And there's just a moment in the middle where like, you know, I'm saying something like, and therefore we have such and such. Oh, hmm, wait a minute. Like something's <laughs> not right. And like something's broken on the screen. Yeah. Like having to grapple with that moment. Um, yeah. I, I kind of liked doing that because even, even if in a, it was in a slightly contrived way, it was just this illustration that like, you know, when you're doing these things, you're going to be wrong. Yeah. And like, you got, you got to recognize that you got to be able to dissect what your previous reasoning process was and get into that. And rather than just telling people that that's the fact, doing a little something to like show it, which probably added like, you know, meaningful runtime to the video. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I'd like to do more of that. Getting people comfortable with being wrong. Is yes. yes. Very, very, very important. That's all the rage in education circles these days, isn't it? Growth mindset and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how do you decide what you're going to teach, <laughs> what you're going to produce? Um, you know, the short answer is like what I'm most excited about. Like I have this long list of possible topics to cover. Um, I also uh, have like a Reddit thread that people can go to to like mm. request things. I also have a lot of people who, despite that the existence of that Reddit thread and an FAQ that points them to it, decide to email me asking me to create something, which I, I'm not going to say I ignore them, but like there's a low probability that those requests turn into videos. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really just going to be if there's something that I'm like, oh, man, this is like this is uh, exciting to me. Therefore, I think it'll be exciting to others. Uh, but honestly, I do end up taking into account if people have requested something a lot, um, we'll do it. Like mm -hmm. I uh, that was the reason for the Fourier transform one. The neural networks one was sort of of a similar vein. It wasn't actually that a lot of people were requesting because it was so out of character because I usually just do like pure math things. But it was a couple individuals in my life who like mentioned that it might be a good thing to do. I was like, actually, yeah, I think there, there could be something there. So it wasn't so much like I was really excited about it to start. But then as I learned more about it and like did some research, then got excited. Yeah, that was going to be um, my next question. How much are you learning while you're doing this? <laughs> yeah, it depends on the content. Yeah. Usually a lot, right? Yeah. Um, so like neural networks, uh, like I'm not like, like I, I have a back, a little bit of a background in computer science, but I'm very far from like, uh, being an expert on deep learning by any stretch of the imagination. A lot of people know a lot more than I do, but, um, you know, I, I at least, uh, had been exposed to it before, like in college and, um, was like, have a lot of the background to like learn it maybe more quickly, but that, that was a lot of meaningful time. Um, you and know, pleasurable, I assume like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, like learning is mostly pleasurable, but learning done efficiently is also not entirely pleasurable, you know? Yeah. I was going to say uh, learning is, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> if it's all pleasurable, you might not be learning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? like, like when I was practicing the violin growing up, there's two ways of like practicing the violin. One is to play the songs that you know, which is fun. Yeah. And the other is to like actually be improving yourself, which is usually to yeah. spend more time on the things that sound really bad. Uh, and is like not at all fun, but that's where there's the highest slope, if not the highest yeah. y-intercept. So it's um, a hard thing to accept this this idea that uh, that yeah. when you're frustrated, that's when the good thing is happening. And 
you know, I, I'm 46 and I still forget that. Like sometimes I'll be trying to learn how to do something new and I'm just angry and frustrated just the same way I was when I was 13 and couldn't solve whatever problem it was and trying mm. to get myself to realize, oh, wait a second, this means I might actually be on to something. Yeah. yeah. Hard. I mean, it's it, well, What makes that hard in thinking about content creation is, well, one, that's usually a good sign when you come in those moments. If like I'm really looking through other resources and like still feeling that frustration, there's a sense, hmm, maybe if I made a good video, like yeah. other people wouldn't be having this sense. <laughs> interesting on the other hand like you have the sense like are you kind of lying to people when you make it seem easy um because it should have like proper learning does have that little pain point that you're describing and it would be disadvantageous for my videos to be filled with pain points right right um so but you could attach them to something that delivers the pain points (laughs) exactly (laughs) Uh, yeah that's one way to do it um, ah, that's what we do. <laughs> and, I, and I try to, you know, I try to leave links to various things in the description for people who want to go deeper. And I think they will. If they do go deeper, they will run into those pain points. And I hope many people do. Um, so anyway, where are but, you going with this thing? <laughs> uh, so, I mean, maybe the biggest change in the last couple months is uh, that there's two new people uh, mm-hmm. contributing now. Um, and my original vision in bringing them on was to have clones in some way. People I could depend on to do like the writing or the animating or like the video production. Mm -hmm. Um, My original vision was that that would be in some sort of entirely self-contained, they are just creating their own visual in a, own video in a bubble. I think more realistically, it'll be more of a a team effort, right? Mm -hmm. Because actually there's a lot of value in like the cross-pollination of ideas. So hopefully instead of just like more videos happening in parallel, it's like uh, a little bit of that, but also videos happening faster and of higher quality. so, uh, like they're both very good writers. Um, and that I think is probably the most important part is to be able to trust that like if a script comes out, it will be empathetic. It will mm-hmm. describe, uh, math, um, uh, like correctly, right. <laughs> you know, all of that. You don't have to do too much like fact checking. Um, one, one of them actually, so a, a perfect example of how this has already been like a very good thing. So, the first project for one of them was this video about the basil problem, uh, where you take the sum of the reciprocals of squares. So like one plus a fourth plus a ninth plus a sixteenth, mm-hmm. and this thing equals pi squared yeah. divided by six. Yeah. Uh, I love to make videos where it's like pi is there. Where's the circle? Right. <laughs> Naturally. So showing why it's true. And my previous conception of the basil problem, understanding the circle involved was a variant of the Leibniz formula one I was referencing earlier, mm-hmm. where if instead of counting lattice points in the plane, I was like, is this convoluted thing of counting lattice points in four dimensions and you're leveraging some nice formulas for the sum of four squares. And like you, you wrangle with it and the basal problem does pop out and you'd like have the sense because there's a hypersphere involved of why pi would be there and pi squared in particular. But it was not exactly something presentable. Um, you're not but, doing videos in four dimensions yet. I have one or two that touch yeah. on something. I've done a video about 10 dimensional spheres. Um, but uh, so anyway, he, he had stumbled across uh, this proof um, written by a Swedish mathematician, Johan Westland, uh, which itself was based on some papers by some Russian mathematicians whose names I can't remember, but that showed a much more elegant proof um, that was confined to two dimensions. And he wrote a really beautiful narrative around it of thinking about um, an infinite array of lighthouses. Uh, on the number line, one lighthouse at the number one, at number two, at number three, and think of the inverse square law, um, how the amount of light hitting your 
I, this is sort of a physical instantiation yeah. of the basal problem. But then that's sort of just a reiteration of the question. But the reason that's a productive thing to do is there's nice ways of thinking about rearranging a setup with lighthouses that doesn't change the intensity on your eyes, but can maybe simplify the problem. And ultimately, it comes down to showing that this infinite array of lighthouses is equivalent to one where you're standing across a circular lake from a lighthouse where that circle has a circumference of two. Um, and anyway, so That's there's this really beautiful. beautiful line of reasoning, and you have this like growing lake towards infinity with lighthouses around its border, and just really beautiful proof, right, mm -hmm. in all ways. Um, and in fact, we saw this blog post by... Uh, Johan Westland, the guy whose paper it was based right. on, having like seen it and like, I don't know, being pleased that what was otherwise something tucked away in the annals of the internet actually like reaching hundreds of thousands of people. So he found um, your video. Did you send it to him or did the internet send it to him? The internet sent it That's to him. That's beautiful. Um, so then we started thinking about are there nice ways to cover a different famous formula for pi, this thing called the Wallace product, that it's a certain infinite product with nice simple fractions mm -hmm. that uh, turns out to converge to pi halves. And same Swedish mathematician has a nice paper on that, similar in effect to something Donald Knuth uh, has written about uh, for like seeing the circle in that product formula. And that probably could have been a pretty good video if we had based it on one of those, because there's sort of a nice visual that's there. It's a little tricky to get into the formulas of it, but I bet we could have like contrived something nice there. But instead, um, Sweder, one of the other additions, was thinking about the basal problem solution and this like infinite circle with like lighthouses around it, or really just like thinking of an infinite circle of uh, evenly spaced points and the analysis you can do on that as you let that tend towards infinity. And basically like just found a new proof uh, or what is new to our knowledge, we've done like a lot of searching, to our knowledge, a new proof of the Wallace product that um, I would argue is sort of simpler than some of the other ones out there in showing like how it's related to the circle. And it also has this really nice way where you can generalize it uh, so to get the infinite product for the sign. Uh, so mm. there's this um, in a way that connects back to how Euler originally solved the Basel problem because he <laughs> solved it using the infinite product for sign. So it's like not only is it connecting the formulas to pi in circles, uh, but it's connecting them to each other. And I love that. And like this would I, I wouldn't have found that. That wouldn't have come up with just me. Um, yeah. And also, I don't think Sreeder would have found it independently because he wouldn't have been thought thinking about it if not for like ben having brought in the the right. by westland so this it's this like cross-pollination of ideas that i think ultimately makes for better potentially more original content um and i so, mean it sounds like you're you're still a mathematician is what yeah. you're describing <laughs> so do, do you want to know the job titles for both of them because oh, i yeah. couldn't think of a realistic one i was like expository mathematician ah uh, beautiful is, because and and I just because I think there's not a lot of focus on expository research on like trying to do new things about stuff we already know, right? Mm -hmm. Usually it's either teach the things that we know the way that we've always taught them, or maybe some small variations, right? Or be at the forefront of human knowledge and probe into things that no one has ever known. Uh, but I think there's a lot of stuff in the middle to just say there's some things that we know, but we we may don't deeply understand. We have proven it but maybe it doesn't have that satisfying feeling or like we know how to teach it, but maybe there exist better ways of teaching it. Like, I think there's a lot of genuine research to happen in that middle ground um, that a few people like care about and focus on. Uh, there's a, a publication called distill that focuses on this kind of thing in the context of machine learning, but all in all, that's not really a, yeah, I mean, focus finding, in that. 
finding new ways to know old things, well, then you can take those new ways and apply them to new problems. And I think that's, I think I, you, you hear of stories like Feynman used to do this sort of thing where he would have problems laying around in his head. And whenever he would learn a new trick, he would just run it across the problems that were sitting in his head. So every once in a while, he'd look like a genius because every once in a while, <laughs> one of them would match up. And right, people right. would be like, how did you do that? But he would always just carry these problems around. And every once in a while, boom, yeah, that yeah. new trick would, would nail it. So where are you headed? Well, that's a good question. Yeah, I realize this is actually the question that you just asked. Yeah. More describe the, the yeah. recent past than the immediate future. But that speaks to the immediate future, yeah. right? One of more people being involved, I think, mattering. I would like for there to be, at some point, I'm not sure exactly when it makes sense, but at some point, more of like an interactive component to what we put out, where rather than it just being a series of videos to learn some topic, the desired user experience is watch a video, play with a thing, watch a video, play with a thing. And where that play is the opportunity to discover the things that you thought you understood, but you actually don't. And the only way that you're going to discover that you don't know them is by seeing your predictions violated, right? Mm -hmm. um, but in a way that's kind of in a non-judgmental environment that is not here as a quiz with answers that are right or wrong. Um, so some, some way of doing that that is active rather than passive. Uh, I say, like, it's not entirely clear to me how that makes sense just because I guess I could just start to do it, like hire someone to do that. And then if people find it valuable, you know, go from Keep there. Going. Yeah. But something like that, I think, insofar as the focus is on people genuinely learning, that has to be, that has to be there. Um, I think uh, more, like I've, I've described more of these series that are targeted towards a specific class that people are, are learning. Um, I'd love to build out more of a library of that mm -hmm. where rather than just having these two, one on linear algebra, one on calculus, I want you to be able to list like any general topic from like late high school to like uh, college in some way and have a series where the goal of them is not to like teach the full series. I don't think someone's gonna watch this one on linear algebra and suddenly know all of linear algebra. But I do think there's a lot of potential for setting the right framing for how you approach a new topic as you go into it. So linear algebra, I just think it was very important to actually think of things in terms of linear transformations mm -hmm. and like spaces um, rather than as grids of numbers because it's very common for an early freshman to just be going through these computational- it's the only way it's taught, right? typically, yeah. But but that's that, that's not what it feels like to apply it. It's also not beautiful. Like <laughs> the, act, the actual act of applying it doesn't feel like implementing Gaussian elimination. It feels like recognizing that the thing to look for is like whether you're in a determinate zero circumstance or that like um, the ways in which dimensionality reduction might be helpful to you uh, or like what the meaning of an eigenvector in this context is and that that's the thing to search for. To identify that stuff, I think really centers around having this strong intuition around linear transformations. Um, and of course, a lot of peripheral things, but for the sake of focusing on this one. So I think in a what amounts to be about a two-hour series or so, running through a couple of the main topics of linear algebra from just what is a vector up through like mm -hmm. eigenvectors and abstract vector spaces in this light can really set the stage for more efficient learning in a full class where you're actually doing exercises and actually implementing it. Um, and, you know, try to do something similar on the calculus front where... So, I mean, can you get... Have you gotten any traction in that regard? Like, you could you could work with a university, embed something in their linear algebra calculus classes. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so as far as, like, embedding, um, 
I'm doing a thing with Udacity associated mm -hmm. with that, uh, but I haven't actively sought out like embedding it in university classes per se, just because it's out there. Like I, yeah. I I've certainly got a lot of. Um, it's guess, there for them to response. use if they want yeah, to. Yeah. Exactly. Um, okay. I think one thing I haven't done, but should just do, uh, is make everything Creative Commons, um, because I don't think there's a reason not to. Um, just have to like double check that fact. And you I think just have is... to take the time to learn about the licenses. Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> exactly. Okay, good, good. Yeah, you've been there. <laughs> um, yeah. But like that kind of thing, just to really emphasize, like incorporate as you will, right, yeah. into what, what things you have. That is the intent of the content. Um, and I don't, I, honestly, I don't know if there would be a lot of direct value for doing the footwork necessary to like get yeah. colleges to officially like use the series in their courses um like it would you know it would be exposed to some more people that might be good but honestly it might be more efficient for that to just happen organically while i work on making more content right like yeah, my fair. time is better spent making a sequel to that series that adds more content to it rather than um like making calls to universities right. or things like that and that's not fun so yeah we spent we spent 10 12 years building stuff before we started thinking seriously about letting the world know about it so yeah we've been there too how much time do you spend thinking aspirationally longer term mm. or or are you, is most of your day-to-day -day largely still spent building the beautiful things I mean, most of the day-to-day -day is spent like in the trenches of yeah. like what is the next video coming up uh, like going over a script or like putting visuals to it or editing in some way. But as far as longer aspiration, I'd say like more and more. Um, and I don't think it makes sense to ever have a fully clear view of like five years from now, what you want to exist. Um, but at the same time, you should have some sense of what qualifies as like a good direction versus a bad direction. So that when life presents moments, you know whether that's a moment to take and shift your plans around it or if it's something that you want to like set aside because there will be other things more well aligned to your wants later down the road. Um, so in that way, I think the kind of things that I think about, like re really staying as focused as I can on this, this almost sounds like so dumb that so obvious that it's dumb, like focus on what consumers want, focus on like the kinds of content that will actually help people. Cause I do think, for anyone who works in like the entertainment industry in some capacity, so like other YouTubers, it can be very easy to accidentally find yourself optimizing not for like the content that people will want to watch or that will reach them the most deeply, but instead just on like keeping your business running in some way. Um, and those should align. And I think in the long run they do align, but in a lot of local senses, they might not feel like that uh, for whatever reason. Um, so that, for example, it, it, I mean, as a creative person, it's just got to be hard for you to optimize that way, though. Well, right? well, I'll give you an example. So, the the thought of like investing more in like series, like the ones I'm describing, where you spend a lot of time creating it, not publishing things, and then putting it out there afterwards, would other, if that was, that would not happen on its own. Because as a creative person, you really love the feeling of putting something out there. Yeah. You like you put a video on the internet. You like seeing a lot of people watch it. Um, like that's just this high adrenaline instance and you would otherwise optimize to just have more of that and it would feel great because you'd be like reaching more people and they would be writing you nice things and that would happen more regularly but it's important to be able to step back and say okay 
on the year to year scale, not on the week to week scale, like the deepest things are the ones where people are actually able to like binge into it for like two hours and were able to say like, I didn't understand this topic. And then I was searching around and like saw this explanation and then realized that what I didn't understand came like three videos before. And like, that's the reason I wasn't understanding it rather than hoping that things always happen in this isolated single 20 minute video. Like that is the stuff that actually matters. So being, being able to like resist the immediate temptations of like more content now to instead think about that. I I think that's important and it won't happen on its own. So we've talked a bit about your, your, your hopes here. What are your fears? You ever worry that you're not doing enough? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so like we've made vague reference to just the questions about do people actually learn from these videos, right? Is it just entertainment? Is there actual learning? Um, there's a strong difference I feel between making these videos and then some one-on-one lessons that I still try to keep up now and then. So on the one hand, if I like spend three hours on a weekend, like going and having some like one-on-one sessions with students, many fewer people are being reached. If, like I said, I can expect that, uh, at an, at a moment, there's like 400 people watching a three blue and brown video on the one hand, that is just more stuff happening than like my sitting side by side, probably giving a lousier explanation to someone because I haven't thought it through. Right? Yeah. On the other hand, like you stand to be a personal inspiration to someone and connect with them in a way that uh, I don't want to say actually matters because I do think connecting remotely over the internet can actually matter, but has a much higher potential of sticking because your face was there and your time investment was directly there to them. So more things that are in person like that, you know, I do kind of wonder, like, should I, should I think about that as being a component of what I'd want to do in the future? In the same way that like AOPS has some brick and mortar components yeah. of what you guys do, right? Um, in fact, actually, what was the motive for that? Uh, a big part of that motive was we've been doing online education now for 15 years. I'm supposed to tell you it's revolutionary. It's going to change everything <laughs> for everyone. And yeah. it's just not true. You know, the, the internet is a fabulous thing for a certain set or type of, of, of learners, people who are super motivated, super focused. And I think what you're doing really taps into that. You're, you're grabbing those people. You're creating something beautiful for those people. But a lot of people, um, a lot of people are not like that. You know, a lot of people are more social learners. And this might speak to some of your gender numbers. You know, uh, you know, people talk about women being more social learners. Um, by going on the ground, we're going to be able to reach more of them. We're also going to be able to go younger, mm. uh, because I, I kind of feel like if you lecture, if you've ever tried lecturing at third and fourth graders, <laughs> it doesn't really work. You want to have a conversation. So yeah. I feel like there's a there's a population of people that we can't quite reach uh, online, where there are modalities and that we can reach them in a social setting. You've got the kids together. You've got them talking to each other. And this is one of the things I hate to see of technology used in the classroom. All the kids sitting on a computer, you've immediately Mm. lost the thing that's most valuable about the classroom. (laughs) Kids are all there. And then we separate (laughs) them all and have them look at screens. Uh, uh, I mean, I think there are some, there may be some good, implementations of technology in the classroom, but I have not seen many of them. So that's, that's well, a good big... implementation is if the technology happens at home, right? Yeah. So as to make the classroom precisely that social environment that you want right. it to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, mm. that's, that's a big part of it. Um, yeah. These, these kind of, are we doing enough? That's, that's something that, that 
kind of keeps me up at night as well. So I mean, that's, honestly, that's kind of an optimistic fear, though, right? Like a more genuine fear would be something like um, if your existence is so dependent on a single entity like YouTube, mm -hmm. uh, like you don't want to be at the whims of their shifts in their algorithm or their policies or anything like that. Oh, like that would be a more genuine fear or um, I don't know. What would be a good genuine fear? Oh, I mean, I think there's just like that things slowly fade for reasons that you have a difficult time describing. You know, it's not that there's some sudden crash and like suddenly yeah. no one is like watching anymore. But if instead just like slowly over time, things like tend down and you're like not having the influence that you thought. And it's just at no point do you have a clear explanation for why that that would be awful in its own way. Right. Yeah. Uh, it would almost be better to have some great calamity <laughs> channel because at least you'd have a thing to point to and know about. Yeah. Um, so those might be more genuine like things to fear rather than like, Oh, are we doing enough? <laughs> right? like, we feel great about the stuff that we're putting in the world. Like, is, is it truly the best that it can be important thing to think about and maybe like worry about, but like it fundamentally reflects more optimism than pessimism to list that first. That's interesting. That's funny. Cause I sometimes describe myself as, well, short-term pessimist, long-term optimist. And I think that mm. probably encapsulates just what you described because I never thought of it as an optimistic fear. Um, maybe it's a megalomaniacal fear. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's more yeah, accurate. That's actually, really, right? It's like, <laughs> we want more influence. Like, is this truly the way to maximize <laughs> the power we have grabbing the math world by its throat? No. Yeah. Well, on that note, I, I, I wrap up with one question I should have led with. Three blue, one brown. Where did that name come from? <laughs> yeah. So I knew I wanted the logo to be like a loose depiction of my eye, which is mm -hmm. um, its color is like three quarters blue and one quarter brown. It's this <sighs> thing called sectoral heterochromia. Um, and that one is like putting your genetic signature on your work in the same way yeah. some people name their channel after their name. And just be a little weird, right? And the channel is about seeing things, so like an eye is not so inappropriate. And then for the name, uh, like I couldn't really think of a different name, so I just named it after the logo. And I do have a belief when it comes to names that it's not only okay, but maybe even optimal to be a little bit weird and different in a way that the first time you hear it, it should sound like, oh, that's not a good name, yeah. right? Like, like. Google, Facebook, Yahoo. Apple, Google. <laughs> like you listen to any company and if you really empathize with what it's like to never have heard that name and have someone propose yeah. that they're going to name their organization like Google, like that, that sounds like a children's toy. Like that's the yeah. dumbest thing I've ever heard. Um, but, but because it is so unfamiliar, that sort of means you can build your own brand into it. So if you want to do something genuinely new and let the name actually reflect like a broader brand rather than being a part of a general yeah. Like phenomenon, like you know, if you're running a, a do-it-yourself channel, you probably want somewhere in the name something that indicates like that it is about fixing things in household mm -hmm. tasks or something there because you want to be part of a broader like genre of people as they're just looking this stuff up. If you have a sense that you really want to do something that others are not necessarily doing and forge a distinct path, like I think there's a benefit in a weird name. So that's kind of where it came from. Excellent. What well, is certainly stuck in my head from the first moment <laughs> I heard it. Although, like, there's a strong disadvantage to the name, which is, you know, people are like, three brown, one blue, one <laughs> blue. How do, you, do you spell it with spaces? Do you spell out the numbers? Like, it's very confusing to actually, like, like right now, if people are listening and they, like, haven't heard of it, they're like, how do I, how, how do I type that in? Is yeah. it like a numeral? Uh, and I typically go, like, no spaces, use the numerals. Um, 
and but even then I'll, I'll see like sometimes when people like use my video clips and something if it's like another youtuber yeah. someone that i know i'll see them write out like t-h-r-e-e -E space like, no <laughs> it's like all good but i'm like ah yeah this is a disadvantage i didn't think about in having such an ambiguous like no one's gonna misspell art of problem solving <laughs> it's not <laughs> Well, on the flip side they're not going to take the time to spell it because it's too long yes uh, yes so I'll, I'll give you the floor you, you've got the last word here how can people find you oh so i mean probably the best way um the website three blue one brown.com will like point to various things or just search on youtube um the that name or 3b1b 3b1b.co the nice shortened version if uh. you want to head there um the numerals but, again. <laughs> numerals, yes. yeah. Uh, and really the YouTube channel is the best place to start, and that'll have things curated as you want. Um, and I, I don't have any specific recommendations for what video would be best to start with. I'm sure the YouTube algorithm knows your wants and desires better than I do, but <laughs> on the front page you'll see like various different types of things. Um, so... I guess people know what they're in for, that like if you're yeah. in for a 20-minute video, so come with patience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come to be illuminated. You'll have a great time. Uh, my guest today has been Grant Sanderson, 3Blue1Brown himself. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me on, Richard. Thanks for listening to Aftermath. You can find show notes for this and other episodes on our website at aops.com slash aftermath. We want more people to discover this podcast, so if you like this episode, please take a moment to share it with others you think will enjoy it. Then head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. I'm Richard Rusick. See you next time. Aftermath is brought to you by Art of Problem Solving, through which we've had the opportunity to work with hundreds of thousands of eager math students around the world. Our textbooks, online school, in-person learning centers, and various online resources empower students to develop the skills they'll need for success at top-tier universities and in internationally competitive careers. Come check us out at aops.com.